Tagamaya Tamaso Maham Joti Gamaya Mrityohor Maham Amritam Gamaya Avir Avir Maedhi Rudra Yate Dakshinam Mukaham Te Namaham Pahinityam Om, lead us from the unreal to the real. Lead us from darkness unto light. Lead us from death to immortality. Reach us through and through ourselves and evermore protect us from ignorance by thy sweet, compassionate face. So my subject this morning is the mystery of human vibrations. And we're going to be talking a little bit about thought force, about subtle energies, about auras, about psychospheres and power places. Um, these are topics which may seem to be very esoteric and, in fact, to belong to the world of the occult. And there is a lot of mystery surrounding these things. That is, there's a lot of mystifying and mysteriousness and, and misty, confusing ideas. Uh, and in order to demystify some of these concepts, well, maybe we can begin by recalling some of the lessons that we learned in high school physics class about matter and energy, and a little bit about electromagnetism and vibration. All of you know about vibration. If you take a tuning fork, uh, sometimes used by uh, musicians, and you strike it, it will make a humming sound. This is because the tines of the fork are vibrating. That means they're oscillating back and forth. This vibration is in turn causing sound waves. A sound wave is just a, a wave of energy that's moving through the air. It moves out from the fork in concentric circles, just as, for example, it's the same with a water wave, that if in a calm, uh, placid pool of water you were to throw a, a stone, uh, the stone would make a splash, and uh, there would be waves, and then you would have the ripple effect. That means the waves would move out towards the shore. Of course, as we know when we observe this, that it's not the water that's moving towards the shore, but it's the energy that's passing through the water. Each wave has a particular wavelength and frequency as the frequency or as the wavelength grows shorter, the frequency will increase. 
And if, if you take, for example, that tuning fork, which maybe it's um, normally, it will sound a middle C tone on the uh, piano. Maybe if you could vibrate it more rapidly, it would, uh, the C um, tone would move up an octave. And uh, theoretically, if you could vibrate it even more rapidly, uh, the, the, the tuning fork would grow warm, it would grow hot, and then you would begin to see light. You would see red, orange, yellow, green throughout the whole spectrum as the vibration of that tuning fork increased. So we can visualize that, a tuning fork, as it vibrates. The fact is, is that everything in this universe exists in vibration. In the beginning, there was no vibration. And everything was centered and in balance, just like a spinning top, spinning very rapidly. It appears not to be moving at all. But after a while, it begins to wobble back and forth. That means it starts to vibrate Vibration is in the highest sense, uh, that is in the philosophical sense, it's a struggle for existence. It's a struggle between being and non-being. Every self-conscious monon has a being. When acted upon by something outside of itself, it has to yield. It has to surrender to the existence of something else. But for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. And therefore, to exist is also to resist. And that resistance and that resistance, that is a vibration. This morning, we're talking about human vibrations. Our title is The Mystery of Human Vibrations by which uh, uh, um, we mean uh, the vibrations of thought. According to Indian philosophy, thoughts are things, just like sticks and stones and like a metal tuning fork. Albeit, the thoughts are more subtle, are intangible and invisible, but in Indian philosophy, that is in particular in the philosophy of the Sankhya and the Yoga teaching, there is no dualism between mind and matter. And that all that we call thought is really just a, a subtler, finer, higher vibration of what we call matter. A thought really is just a word or a series of words, a sentence, a complete thought. And just as a word has a certain sound vibration, so too a thought has a certain frequency and wavelength of vibration. One of the mysterious effects of thought vibration, it's seen in our own bodies. And uh, in fact, that's one of the fundamental principles of the science of mind. That is that every movement 
or vibration of the psyche has a corresponding physical movement in the body. That is, your body hears everything that your mind says and responds accordingly. You remember, for example, if you read in the life of Sri Ramakrishna, you notice that he, he always is aware and he always notices the physiognomy and the phrenology of people that he meets. Young disciples come to him, that is physiognomy and phrenology. Those are, today they're both regarded as kind of like pseudosciences. But both of them rest on a fundamental basic truth, and that is that your thoughts and your feelings and your anxieties and your hopes and your worries um, all manifest in your body and form your physical features. You remember how on one occasion, Rakal, that means a young disciple of Sri Ramakrishna, at that time he was about 14 years old, and he was a young boy. He is a very, living a very pure uh, life, practicing meditation. He, and uh, one morning he came into the uh, Sri Ramakrishna's room at Dakshineshwar, and Sri Ramakrishna looked at him and he, says, and he said, why is there a dark shadow over your face? Have you been telling lies? <laughs> and uh, well, Rakal, he said, what? of course not. He denied that. He couldn't understand. Then thinking about it later, he remembered that in fact the day before he told a white lie, a fib, to his grandmother. And uh, well... What did Sri Ramakrishna see on that occasion? Did he really see a physical shadow that we could maybe take a photograph of? Well, maybe not. Maybe he just simply noticed a subtle change in the contours of the face of the person. And in fact, we also often react to subliminal messages uh, in relating to people who we meet. We're not consciously aware of why we think and feel the way we do, and yet we're getting continual messages which are subliminal. That means below the threshold of our consciousness. But there is some objective manifestation in the physical. How can we explain that physical manifestation? Well, a tuning fork, for example, when it's struck, it vibrates the air. And these vibrations, uh, if you have other tuning forks, for example, placed around in different parts of the room, then when one starts to vibrate, the others will also start to vibrate. It's called sympathetic vibration or resonance. That is, sound vibrations can influence material things which are around them and form and shape matter. Long ago, well around in the 1800s, there was a psychologist, his name was Chladni. He did some very famous um, experiments which graphically show how uh, vibration affects matter. And uh, on one occasion, for example, he put some sand onto a large steel plate. 
and then he would rub a rosined bow along the edge of that plate and uh, the vibrations of the of the bow would kind of move the plate and the and the, the the sand particles would dance and move into patterns which were kind of like uh, geometrical mandala like uh, patterns on the plate well maybe you can do the same thing if you have a plate of sand you take it home and put it on your stereo speaker you play some simple music and you'll find that that sand will begin to move into sh it will begin to form and shape itself that is to say vibration forms and shapes material physical matter the tuning fork it vibrates the air and it produces sound waves similarly thoughts vibrate the chitta that means the akasha the mind stuff and create thought waves remember as we're thinking about that well see it, it's a little bit hard for us maybe to because we're kind of conditioned by Western philosophy to believe that there is a dualism between mind and matter that's the bugbear of Western philosophy Indian philosophy, there is no such dualism. Mind and matter are the same thing. It's just, albeit, mind is more subtle, more invisible, and more intangible. Both are manifestations of, of, of primal matter, we could say, that is a prakriti of the primal substance which makes up all things. So we can say the tuning fork vibrates the air, the, our thoughts vibrate the mind space. And uh, similarly, just as those thoughts, those vibrations, those waves can form and shape physical matter, can form and shape our bodies. According to yoga psychology, we have five bodies. We see the most exterior, gross body made of flesh and blood uh, but interior to that we have an energy body interior to that we have a mind body interior to that we have a an intelligence body and like this they're bought one within the one one body within the next like Chinese boxes and when they when the subtle begins to vibrate by by the principle of sympathetic vibration or resonance the next body, that is, the energy body, will begin to vibrate. And as the energy body vibrates, then the physical flesh and blood body will begin to vibrate and form and shape itself uh, in accord with the great principle, the great law of correspondence. Um, I hope this doesn't sound too much like a physics class, but, but uh, we're going to, hopefully, hopefully we're kind of setting the, um, we're, we're kind of laying a foundation here for us to help to understand a lot of the things that we will in fact be reading about in the lives of the saints and sages. We're trying to lay for, we're trying to establish a rationale 
for things which appear to be esoteric and occult. And we're going to try to show that those things which often appear maybe to, um, an outside a person who, uh, or an ordinary person, would appear to be strange and occult. We're trying to uh, argue that, uh, in fact, these things, although they are not proved by science, at least they stand to reason. In any case, sound is a useful analogy for understanding the influence of thought. In order to understand the influence of thought uh, at a distance, maybe we need to understand, too, some of the principles of electromagnetism. All created things have properties of electromagnetism. Take, for example, the smallest thing in the world, maybe like an electron. An electron is, a, is the, like the fundamental constituent of matter. An electron is, that is, it spins round and round, round and round the nucleus. It spins round and round. An electron is just really a ball of electricity. And you know when electricity moves around, and, and as electricity moves, it creates around it a field of a magnetic field. All electric currents radiate a magnetic field. And therefore that electron is, a, is an electromagnetic phenomena. Similarly it is, as in the microcosm, so in the macrocosm. That's what we're taught by, by, the, by, the, by the Vedanta philosophy in the most ancient times. Yadeveha tadamutra, tadamutra tadanveha. Whatever's here, that's there. And whatever's there, that is here too. Whatever we see in the small, whatever principles are true of the smallest particle, the smallest thing in the universe, those same principles hold true for the largest thing. Look at the earth. The earth spins also round and round. The earth uh, spinning round and round, it has ele electromagnetic qualities. That is, it has a magnetic field. It has a north and south pole. There's great lines of magnetism and induction that run all around the Earth. And in fact, that's how birds and, and uh, bees and, uh, I mean, rainbow trout, how do they find their way home? They're out there swimming in the ocean. How in the world can they go back and find their particular river and stream and go back to, to where they came from? How can butterflies that fly all the way down to Mexico and they come back to the same city and town uh, in, in California? Well, they're following those lines, the lines of induction, that is the magnetic lines around the earth. Atoms, molecules, and the earth itself, well, of course, these are all gross elements. And we know that these are all material things. But according to the yogis, thoughts also are things. And thoughts have the same qualities as material things, albeit more subtle, more invisible, more intangible, more immeasurable. A thought also is a vortex of energy. 
It's charged with a positive or negative emotion, and it has a magnetic field. And because of that magnetic, those electromagnetic properties, a thought will affect even our flesh and blood bodies. <clears throat> whenever you, whenever you hold a uh, a magnet, for example, uh, near a piece of metal. And all of the molecules, bipolar molecules in that piece of metal will subtly realign along the, along the um, uh, lines of induction of the magnetic field. And if you take a freely suspended magnet like a, like a compass, it will automatically begin to turn. It will line up with the, along the, the, the magnetic lines of north and south of the Earth's magnetic field. Similarly, it is with our own flesh and blood bodies. In fact, new research in biomagnetism reveals that our bodies are also filled with ferromagnetic crystals called magnetite. And these magnetite crystals are organized kind of in... in linear lines within the membranes and the, of, our, of our own biology. And uh, in fact, these are, our bodies are therefore, uh, uh, have electromagnetic qualities. And that is that these crystals, uh, along with the subtle molecules that make up the gross substance of our body, that is what we call the tanmatras, they also will begin to align themselves with our thoughts and thus to begin to form even gross matter. Well, um, trying to explain why did Sri Ramakrishna, when he saw Rakal, he said, you have a dark shadow over your face. What did he mean? That's what we're trying to explain. Did he see something objective? Which is what we're maintaining this morning. We're maintaining that Sri Ramakrishna, that is the saint, who had the eyes to see and the refinement of sensibility, that he actually was perceiving some objective change in the contours and expression of the face of the person. Why did his physical face ha undergo a change because of a moral action? That's what we're trying to explain. Well, we can see the magnetic influence of thoughts oftentimes on our physical bodies. The sum total of, our, of all of our thoughts we call our personality or our character. That's like the sum total of all of our thoughts of who we are. And just as our mind vibrates with a single thought, so our whole psyche vibrates with the, the, the resonance of our character. And in fact, it's just as if our, our whole body is vibrating with our character. It's just as if our, our hands were resonated and magnetized. Our character emanates from us like an aura. And everything that we touch 
will take the imprint of our character. We know, for example, that immediately surrounding our bodies that is just outside our skin, there are envelopes of different auras. For example, you have a heat aura which which radiates from your skin. And maybe you've seen pictures taken by heat-sensitive cameras. Or maybe you've seen soldiers with these night goggles. They're looking out there, and they see they see a mile away. They see a, a living being is moving. What do they see? They don't see their face or their, what they see is the heat aura. And that is that all living creatures emit body heat. And that surrounds us like an envelope. We also have around us an aura of, of smell or odor. And everyone, I mean, there's, there's like we walk through life with kind of an old, within an olfactory bubble here of ionized sweat and CO2 and bacteria. And, uh, well, every time you feel an emotion, every time you feel angry, for example, hormonal changes take place in your body, and that radiates uh, an actual subtle fragrance from the body. Maybe we can't smell it, but dogs can. Dog can track you through the forest for mile after mile, even though, even though maybe you haven't left any tracks. You've been very careful. And uh, so they have a, animals sometimes have a heightened sense of smell or of hearing, for example. And... Uh, we also have around us an aura of energy that is an electromagnetic energy field. You can take a picture of it, purely in photography. Around us there emanates electrical phenomena. Similarly, the yogis maintain that around us we have an aura of character. That is, our character emanates from us like an aura. Everything that you touch will, in its turn, take the mark of your character. That is, you will leave your mark wherever you go. And just as wherever you go, whatever you touch, there will be a heat print. There will be a fingerprint. There will be a, 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 some odoriferous print. <laughs> so also there will be an imprint of your character. How this happens? How? By sympathetic resonance. By the transfer of magnetic properties, we leave the trace of our character. This explains, for example, why Raja yogis are very careful about where they get their food. And... Uh, in fact, if we partake of any food that's handled by a person of bad character, we will, by sympathetic resonance, albeit to a small degree, we will, be, we will take on the qualities of that person. This is why 
yogis in, in a very advanced stage are, are intent on partaking of pure food. You know, in the Yoga Sutras, Patanjali distinguishes between three kinds of impurities in food, the, the jati dosha, the nimitta dosha, and the ashraya dosha. <clears throat> for example, if I... <clears throat> If someone brings you, for example, a glass of, <clears throat> of seawater, well, you wouldn't drink it. You would consider that's impotable. That is, it's by its very nature, it, you can't drink it. That's jati dosha. If someone were to bring you a glass of water, which is, you know, just is kind of uh, cloudy, it's kind of dirty, it's got, it's got greasy fingerprints all over the glass, Maybe you wouldn't drink it. Why? That's because it has the nimitta dosha. That means it's unsanitary. But if a person of bad character were to bring you that glass, well, maybe you would just drink it. Well, <laughs> But if you read in the life of Sri Ramakrishna and all that we're talking about this morning, we can see exemplified in the life of the saints and sages. It explains to us why they behave as they do. Sri Ramakrishna on one occasion visited the house of the Pandit Shashadar Tarkachudamani on the occasion of the car festival. And there, being a hot day, he asked for a glass of water. And a man who was wearing a tilak, that is, mark on his forehead, and strings of Rudraksha beads, and he had all kinds of emblems of religion all over his body. And uh, he brought the water. Sri Ramakrishna reached over, took the glass. He tried to drink it, but he couldn't drink it. Put it down, and uh, he asked for another glass of water. Another man took the water, went there, washed the glass, Brent came back, he took the glass, and he drank it. And, uh, well, Swami Vivekananda, that is the founder of this Vedanta society, at that time he was a young boy, and he'd heard tell of this ashraya dosha. And he noticed this, because he'd noticed this on many occasions, the same kind of thing happening. And he had noticed, too, that the first glass of water that had been brought was very clean. There was nothing wrong with the glass. It was all washed. The water was clean. What was the problem? And so he began to make inquiries. And then he soon found that that first man, in fact, was a person of notorious bad character. That is, he's a cruel and evil man. That somehow, maybe, he had left his imprint on the glass. And Sri Ramakrishna, hypersensitive to such subtle vibrations, reacted accordingly. Well, I uh, hope it doesn't sound too occult, <laughs> but uh, otherwise, how do we explain the behavior of the saints and the sages? That is, there's a reason why they behave as they do. For example, we offer sweets and fruits here in the shrine and the temple. And uh, when that food is offered by the worshiper to God, 
hopefully it's a, it, it, we believe that God actually partakes of that food. And then it is brought out and distributed to the devotees. And it's called, it's considered to be consecrated food. That means we call it prasad, which means that it's been blessed. It's blessed food. That is, it's holy food. And therefore, if you eat a little bit of this prasad, then that kind of was very beneficial for you in your spiritual practice. Here we can ask ourselves, as rationalists, that is, we always want our beliefs to stand to reason. We don't want to believe, we don't want blind faith. We want, to, we want faith, but we want our faith and our beliefs to stand on the foundation of reason, or at least to stand to reason and not contradict it. So we can ask ourselves as rationalists, how can, what is it that makes prasad holy? Well, we know, for example, it's just psychologically, as when we see that coming out of the shrine, it associates in our mind with the whole idea of the temple and the worship service, so that evokes uh, positive associations in our mind. We also understand by our discussion of vibration uh, and, uh, and magnetism that, in fact, the, that, that, uh, that food is imbued with the vibrations of the puja itself. And we believe, too, that it was touched by God, who's partaken of the food. And so the food is blessed. It's consecrated food. Similarly, any food, in fact, that is prepared with love and served with love and devotion is a blessing. And in fact, any food which is prepared with a negative attitude and served with a curse really is a curse. And that's why we want food prepared with TLC, right? <laughs> Tender, loving care. That's good for us as spiritual aspirants. This mystery of human vibrations, it explains to us, for example, why in some temples and churches they keep relics of saints and sages. That is, a relic is, a, is just an object uh, which is kept as a memorial of some saint and which carries the blessing of his character. We have several such relics here in our temple which are brought out on ceremonial occasions by touching those relics, you will be blessed. And you will, you will uh, be touching, as it were, the character, the mind, and the heart of the person who held that object as his own. This mystery of human vibrations explains to us something of what we call the atmosphere of a place. You know that uh, if you go into a restaurant, for example, uh, you may say, oh, well, it's a nice atmosphere. <laughs> and uh, that atmosphere is created largely by the decor of the restaurant. We call it the ambiance. 
Similarly, there's another kind of an atmosphere which has nothing to do with decor. Rather, it has to do with the psychosphere. And uh, we know, for example, that if you go into a holy place, if you go into a temple, and uh, it has a, a holy presence. Saints with highly refined sensitivity can feel this presence. You may think you can feel the presence, but you probably can't. <laughs> but uh, at least you will have a positive association in your mind as you walk into a temple. The, in order to feel that presence, it requires a refined sensitivity. That is, it takes one to know one. Sri Ramakrishna, for example, once went on a journey to Navadvip, uh, which was the birthplace of, birthplace of Sri Chaitanya, on the, along the, it was a, a, a small village on the banks of the river Ganges. He went in the company of Mathura Babu on a, on a river boat that went up the river Ganges. Sri Ramakrishna was looking, he, he was so anticipating his visit to Navadvip. Sri Chaitanya was a great saint, an avatar, and he expected to be thrown into, into a wonderful state of great devotion and, and, uh, and ecstatic feelings. When they arrived at Navadvip, they walked through the town, and Sri Ramakrishna was shown all of the places associated with Sri Chaitanya, but he was disappointed. He didn't really feel the ex the, up uh, the, 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 the the great sense of great emotion and the great presence that he expected he would feel in that place. They boarded the river boat and they continued on their journey to the city of Banaras. They'd gone about two miles up the river when Sri Ramakrishna, standing by the side on the railing of the, of the river boat, he, began, he fell into a state of ecstasy. He began to sing. He began to dance. He had visions of Sri Chaitanya. And he felt a great inspiration in that place. Later on, it was found that in fact the city of Navadwip had moved. <laughs> that is, you know, in the river Ganges, it, it, one of the peculiarities is the river runs so swift and, and strong that in some places whole river banks are washed away and they're sandbars and it's a treacherous river to na navigate. Well, that city of Navadwip used to be located two miles upstream. But in fact, the river had changed its course and had washed the village away. And the, and, the, and the villagers, realizing that that was going to happen, they packed up, <clears throat> pulled up stakes, and they moved two miles down the river. And so Sri Ramakrishna felt there, in that place, the presence of the saint. Well, now we can understand, for example, how a saint... <clears throat> who lives in a particular place where there are, maybe he lives in a house and there's, there's trees and there's a, there, there's a, there, there are rocks and there's stones. We can understand that he's thinking high thoughts and uh, that those high thoughts begin to generate thought waves 
and that those thought waves strike the rocks and the trees and the house and the dirt and everything around it, and that everything that is struck rings, and that therefore that that whole place is kind of ringing with the presence of that holy man even after he's left. Just as if you ring a bell in your ear and you take the bell away, maybe five minutes later, you still hear that ringing in your ear. So everything in the holy place is still ringing from the presence of the saint. And, uh, but then we could even ask here, it's a wonderful example here in the life of Sri Ch- Ramakrishna, because in Sri Ramakrishna, there wasn't any place. That is, there weren't any trees. All the trees were gone. All the rocks were gone. All the dirt, sand was gone. All the buildings were gone. And uh, yet he felt the great presence. That means, uh, that is, it's not just, it's not just, um, th- that is, it's not just um, visible things which ring and vibrate, that, that take that vibration, but it's the space itself, just the space itself. You know, according to Vedanta philosophy, space it's not just empty. There's not just empty nothingness. Space is matter. Space is just like a rock or a stone, albeit more subtle and refined and intangible and immeasurable. We call it the akasha. The akasha is a very the subtle, the subtlest form of matter, but it's matter nonetheless, and it vibrates. It has energy. And similarly, Sri Ramakrishna, even though he's in that, just in the space, he begins to feel, well, so now we can begin to understand why it is devotees visit holy places. Because we get the benefit of the psychosphere. It helps us to meditate and to um, calm our minds. The intensity of a psychosphere, it can be increased by the number of people who come to that place and hold similar thoughts. That is, a yogi may establish some tirtha, that means a holy place, by meditating there. He will create a psychosphere. But that vibration can be amplified by the number of other people who go there and who think similar thoughts. We know, for example, the two thought, two waveforms, whether they're sound waves or water waves, if they are of similar frequency, they will lock into phase. That means they'll oscillate at the same time. And although the frequency will remain the same, the amplitude will increase. That means the intensity will increase. That's just the principle of the high-fidelity amplifier. So uh, we can increase the thought vibrations of a place. That's why people are encouraged to come to the temple. The temple has a, a, a psychosphere. But every time that you meditate here, you help to amplify that, that atmosphere and benefit yourself and others. 
just as the vibrations of your thoughts, then the vibrations of your thoughts affect your body. They affect everything that you touch. The vibrations, these human vibrations, carry to a distance also. And just as when a stone is thrown into a water and there's a ripple effect outward, uh, even when those ripples subside and we can't see them anymore, the effect is still there. The vibration is still there. That's the principle of the conservation of energy. That pond will go on vibrating for all eternity by, as a result, the consequence of that one stone. Similarly it is, Swami Vivekananda says in one place, if a man goes into a cave and shuts himself in, I'm quoting to you here from uh, volume four of the complete works of Swami Vivekananda. If a man goes into a cave, shuts himself in, and thinks one really great thought, and then dies, that thought will penetrate the walls of that cave, vibrate through space, and at last permeate the whole human race. So that's encouraging. <laughs> we know that those great thoughts and those great vibrations of those saints and sages, all who ever lived, they're still vibrating. They're still in, in motion. The degree of the influence of that thought vibration will depend on the intensity of the thought and also on the tuning of our mental radio. You know, all radio programs in the world are, all, are right here in this room. All the images of the television images are all right here in this room. All we have to do is we have to tune in to perceive them. And uh, similarly, it is all of the thoughts that have been held in mind for all Time exists right here. All we have to do is to listen and to hear those thoughts and to respond to them. All we have to do is to tune in our mental radio in order to receive those thoughts. That's the principle of mental telepathy. Well, maybe like hearing the whispers in somebody else's mind. Sometimes that's that is difficult for us. For example, if you're at a noisy party where everyone is talking all at once and music is playing loudly and people are singing and dancing, you realize that you have to raise your voice considerably just in order to be heard. And if your wife is somewhere across the room and she whispers to you, you <laughs> there's no way that you're going to hear her, her voice. In order to hear her whisper, you have to be in a quiet room without any interference patterns here so that you can communicate. And the fact is, is that most of us 
have a party going on inside of our heads. We're talking to ourselves. We're running tunes and music through our heads. We can't hear anything that's going on. And um, so if we, if we want to hear, if we want to receive those subtle uh, thought, uh, thoughts and inspiration, we need to quiet our minds. Well, I floated for you a few ideas. Uh, my purpose here as a salesman of this religion, that's, that's what I consider myself, um, to try to maybe to demystify some of these uh, incidents, episodes, which you're going to read in the lives of the saints and sages. We've been talking about the mystery of human vibrations. I hope that maybe I've given you a more of a healthy perspective and shown you that maybe this is not so esoteric and occult as it may at first seem to be. The fact is, is that today there are many books and popular notions about such things as auras and power places and vibrations and it's very good for us to have a dose of healthy skepticism. Because for every true example, there are hundreds of frauds. And uh, pseudoscience is not science. At the same time, we uh, let us not be too skeptical either. That means we don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater. We have seen that there is some truth in these things and that they can be perceived. And what we really need is discrimination to be able to winnow the wheat from the chaff and to separate the fact from the fiction. And once we have that discrimination, then we can benefit from the study and discover the truths that lie hidden in the mystery of human vibrations. <clears throat>